Who matters the most? Oh, I know, of course we all matter, we know that, but who really matters, as in, like, essential human personnel? In recent months, there's been a lot of talk about immigration and deportation. Do we let rocket scientists and computer engineers into the country, but not carpenters and farmers? Who is needed? A recent tongue-in-cheek editorial in the New York Times suggested that if we were going to be rational about who to deport, we would deport those who are not living up to our American standards. The author pointed out that over 80% of the teenagers who won the science talent search, and a competition that is sometimes called the Junior Nobel Prize, that about 80% of the winners were children of foreign-born parents. In addition, 83% of undocumented immigrants practice Christianity, while only 70% of folks born in this country practice Christianity. So maybe we should deport some of us who were born here. Now, obviously, the columnist was joking, but the point is that it is difficult to quantify the worth that any of us brings to the larger society. I only have one sister, so when I was a little girl, I used to marvel at the fact that my mom was one of 12 children. There were so many aunts, uncles, cousins that I couldn't keep them all straight, and when we gathered at my granny's little house near the family farm in Frost, Texas, where they all grew up, six boys and six girls, I would kind of wonder aloud, even as I tried to remember all of their names, how is it that my mom got off of this dusty little farm and became such a city girl? One word, college. My mom was the first in the family to go to college. When she decided to go to college after graduating from high school, her parents said, bravo, how do you plan to pay for that? We can't afford it. Years later, when my mom's youngest brother, the youngest of the 12 children, decided to go to college, Granny and her husband, Buell, who died the year I was born, finally had enough money to support Jerry just a little bit as he went to college. But I always knew growing up in that clan that my mom was special. Two out of 12 went to college. Surely she was somehow better than the rest of them. Did her educational accomplishments make her life matter more than theirs? You and I live in a world that is deeply stratified. Our society separates itself along lines of class, race, education, economics, politics. And there is this public discourse that is going on in the land about which lives matter. Richard Reeves describes how the upper middle class continues to make economic gains while the rest of Americans mostly don't. Since 1979, he points out that those in the top one-fifth of the economic scale, that is, households earning more than 200000 in income, that one-fifth group has experienced a collective gain of $4 trillion, 
while those in the bottom four-fifths have seen a collective gain of $3 million. $4 million for the top, $4 trillion for the top one-fifth, $3 trillion for the bottom four-fifths. Last summer, when I was in Italy working with refugees on a small island, I visited the graves of those men and women who had died at sea seeking freedom and hope. The Italian graveyard was beautiful. The ornate graves of the Italians were covered with beautiful flowers, statues of angels and saints, excerpts from poetry and scripture, shiny marble tombstones where the names were etched in beautiful script. And then we came across the graves of the immigrants. It was just a concrete slab in the wall with a spray-painted number, 117, looking like graffiti. The locals were raising money to spruce up these graves. Mediterranean Hope, the church organization I volunteered with, was trying to locate the relatives of these lost loved ones. They wanted to say somehow in how they treated these graves and contacted the, the nameless relatives of these folks. These lives mattered. Today's scripture lesson reminds us of the conversation about lives mattering, which has gone back for so many generations. The passage begins... A disciple is not above a teacher, nor a slave above a master. Jesus invites his friends to follow him in loving and saving the world, a tall order that Jesus offers to them. And at the same time, he warns them that they will not be immune to the suffering and the pain that he has experienced along the way. If the Savior of the world could end up on a cross, what makes them think that they could follow his same path and escape trials and tribulations themselves. Surely, their lives don't matter more than his. But having warned them, Jesus also tries to encourage them by saying three times in this short text, Be not afraid. Have you ever stood at the end of the diving board while a four-year-old stood on the edge of the diving board, quivering, and tried to tell her, Jump! Don't be afraid! Jump! She is still afraid. Have you ever told your friend who is contemplating elective hip surgery, but who is reading also the statistics about the number of people her age who have a stroke during surgery, have you ever tried to tell her, don't be afraid, you're going to be fine? She's still afraid. Have you ever told your sister who's going through a divorce, you're going to be fine financially, just get the divorce? Don't fear, but she can't sleep at night running the numbers and trembling in fear. Jesus cannot make them stop being afraid. All he can do is to tell them how much their lives matter to God. He reminds them of the two sparrows, those teeny tiny birds that were found in the marketplace on the sale table, two for a penny None of them will fall apart from your father. Your lives matter to God. Even the hairs on your head are counted. The God who sends them 
deeply and intimately cares for them, fall they may, but not one of them will fall without God there to catch them. A week or so ago, Kathy Buckley, a member of our congregation, left her home in South Leewood and drove down to the northeast part of Kansas City, just east of downtown, to set up the home of a refugee family arriving from the Congo. Kathy was meeting a group of ladies from our church, ladies who live in Brookside and Mission Hills and Lee Summit, who gather weekly to dust and vacuum and make beds and clean toilets in these run-down old apartments and kind of roughshod rental houses that are designated for refugees from war-torn countries. I've been to a few of these houses, and each time my little Google Maps takes me to a street, to a block, to a neighborhood I didn't know existed, and I wouldn't want to live there. The yards, if there is a yard, is mostly weeds. The apartments have all seen better days. And on this particular day, Kathy is trying to make this house, this apartment, more of a home than just a place. And so she's carrying with her some supplies. And when she pulls up to the curb, she opens her car door and she steps out carrying the supplies. And she doesn't realize that there's a a hole about this deep where her foot slips and goes down into the hole. And she drops everything and is flat on the ground. And this little six-year-old girl comes running, and she reaches her hand out to Kathy, and she says, can I help you? And Kathy looks at that little girl, and she thinks about her twisted ankle, and she thinks, maybe she can't help me up. And then about that time, a man from the neighborhood walks over, and she gets up, and she goes in, and she meets the other ladies, and they begin preparing the home for the refugees, and then When they're about done, Kathy goes out on the front porch, and she begins sweeping, and here comes that same little girl. And the little girl looks at Kathy and says, Are you moving in? And Kathy said, No, but there's a really nice family that's coming here in just a few hours. Don't you think what the little girl really wanted to know from Kathy is, Are you my neighbor? And the truth is, yes, all of us are neighbors because all of us are the sparrow whom God would catch if we were the ones to fall. The God who sends us into the world to love and to serve following that risky path of Jesus is the same God who intimately cares for us, who adores every single one of us, and who knows more about each of us than we know about ourselves. This love of God, this is what sets us free. Free from those fears that hold us back. There was a recent article in the Christian Century that told the story about a lawyer named Kenneth Feinberg. Kenneth Feinberg chaired the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund. This was that fund that was created to give money to the family of every single person who died in the September 11th terror attacks. Feinberg's job was to figure out how much each family would receive. And he he used a formula. It was a, a formula he had used before where you consider the victim's age, 
his or her earning potential, how many children they had, whether or not they had life insurance. And as a lawyer, he had been well-trained in how to determine how much a person's life was worth. In his deliberations, some families, some high-level executives' families, received as much as $7.1 million, whereas some blue-collar worker families received about 250000 But as Feinberg sat down and met with the families of each of these victims, he began to feel uncomfortable with his legal formula. Why was it that some of these lives were worth so much more than others? And so years later, when Kenneth Feinberg received a phone call from the president of Virginia Tech, the president wanted Feinberg to come and manage the funds that would distribute the compensation to the families of the faculty and the students who were killed in the 2007 mass shooting on the campus. And Feinberg said at that moment, I realized that Feinberg, the citizen, should trump Feinberg, the lawyer. My legal training would no longer stand in the way. I decided this time, before I even went to the campus, that all the victims, students and the faculty alike, would receive the same compensation. Feinberg began to see what Matthew saw, what Jesus saw, that sparrows and disciples and students and teachers and slaves and masters and the financial top 1% and the financial 99 bottom percent all matter the same to God. As the gospel song puts it, his eye is on the sparrow, so I know he's watching me. This empowers us to go to places we had never dared go before. When my son was about three or four years old, my friend Sally called and invited me to go to the swimming pool. We took our kids. She had two toddlers. I had one, and our kids were happily splashing around in the baby pool. It was maybe two feet deep. And Sally and I were sitting on the side of the homestead pool just visiting. When out of the corner of my eye, I saw Connor slip and go underneath the water. He was maybe 10 or 15 feet away from me, maybe as far as Steve is from me. And I don't know about you, but when I started running through that water, it felt like my feet were in molasses and I could barely move them. And I was lunging across the pool as fast as I possibly could. And I finally got to Connor and I swooped him up before he swallowed too much of that swimming pool water. And just as I pulled him up out of the water, the lifeguard, who was about a foot and a half away from Connor, slowly lumbered down off of his lifeguard chair. And he met my gaze right about here, and he said to me, Wow, lady, you're fast. And you know who runs faster than me.